You're listening to a sermon given by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, June 28, 2020 at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. Uh, if you haven't got your Bibles out, go ahead and get it. Matthew chapter 13. Um, our parable this morning, it, it, it quite honestly, is, is part of a much larger story. Um, you could really go back to the days in which uh, Jerusalem had been sacked by the Babylonian Empire. And in those days when Babylon conquered Jerusalem, uh, the majority of God's people were taken into captivity in Babylon, but a few were left remaining there in Jerusalem. And the ones that were left remaining in Jerusalem, they were confused. They weren't quite sure what was happening. Wasn't this to be God's place? Wasn't Jerusalem to be the place where God ruled and reigned? And wasn't it from Jerusalem that, that God was going to bless the surrounding nations? And, and here they are in captivity, those left confused, wondering what's happening. And they shouldn't have been completely confounded. God, prior to this moment, had sent them a prophet. His name was Isaiah. And through Isaiah, God was calling his people to repentance. He was exposing to his people the the duality of their hearts, the tendency of their hearts to want to serve the idols of the day and the idols of the nation as well as God himself. And God was exposing this to his people through Isaiah, but the people weren't listening. And so God's people found themselves, as God had said would happen, under his judgment in captivity. But Right there in in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 52, on the heels of this moment and all of the confusion for those that were left, we find this amazing kind of prophetic poem, and it starts off like this, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Despite the destruction, despite the confusion, despite what was happening in the moment, God, through his prophet, speaks of a messenger running and shouting to his people, good news. God is still king. And one day, God himself will return, take up his throne, and bring peace. And in that poem, the the way that they would respond, verse 8, the voice of your watchmen, it says, lift up their voice together. They sing for joy. For eye to eye, they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Good news. He's still on the throne, and it brings joy. Now, hundreds of years later, from that time in the life of God's people and the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years later, Jesus would arrive on the scene in the region of Galilee and begin proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. The good news, same word, same one used in the Old Testament, the good news that we translate as the word gospel, the good news, the proclamation that a new king is indeed on the throne. If you've been around for a while, you hear the word gospel thrown about in all of our conversation and in most of our messages. The word gospel is just the way the New Testament writers would summarize all of Jesus' teachings because all that Jesus was teaching was a summary of the good news of God's kingdom and what life is meant to look like lived in this kingdom under this king. This gospel is his word. It is his word of God's kingdom. 
And so Jesus begins moving throughout the region of Galilee, just like the messenger that God had spoken about in Isaiah chapter 52, proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. It's come. But the people who would listen were often confounded. This wasn't the kingdom, the one that Jesus is talking about. It it wasn't the kingdom that they were expecting. They were expecting a particular type of political kingdom, a particular type of military kingdom, a particular physical kingdom. And, And Jesus was talking about something entirely different. His kingdom was speaking first and foremost about the reign and the rule of God in the hearts of people. And even more confounding, he would say that this kingdom had arrived with him that he was the king, that in his own coming to earth, God's rule and reign was coming near to his people in a way that had never happened before. All of God's promises to establish for himself a kingdom are beginning to be fulfilled. They're beginning to break in. A new creation is going to come. A place of perfect righteousness and peace is coming. A place where justice reigns and all wrongs are making right. It is broken in. And the good news of this kingdom, Jesus is proclaiming. But if you're familiar with the story, this good news, it, it began to bother the religious and political leaders of Jesus' day. It made them very nervous, the claims that he was making. And so they sought to kill him. And in his timing, he let them do it. Why? Well, for God's king to take his throne, his enemies had to be defeated. The power of sin that had enslaved God's people since the garden had to be defeated. God's holy judgment for our rebellion against him had to be satisfied. And King Jesus satisfied God's justice through an act of loving substitution. A crown was placed on his head. A robe wrapped around his body. And then Jesus, in mockery, was exalted. He was lifted up, but not on the throne that we expected. He was lifted up on a cross. And at first blush, it it doesn't really seem very victorious at all. But this was the initiation of Jesus' enthronement as king. It was on that cross that Jesus turned the shame of his crucifixion into beauty. It was on that cross that Jesus, as king, turned the brutality of that moment into glory, glorious victory. It's why Paul would pronounce, and we continue to speak, that we preach, we speak of Christ and him crucified. That's it. A stumbling block to some, foolishness to others. Always people wanting something different, but we preach Jesus crucified. Lest we find ourselves confident and boasting in anything but the cross. But here's the thing. There's nothing intrinsically special about the instrument of the cross. The instrument of death and torture. What makes the cross the center of our message is that it's Jesus' cross. We don't love the cross for the cross itself, but because it's his cross. It was our king who took this brutal instrument of humiliation and death and a representation of the consequences for our sin. 
It was this king who makes it a display for the goodness of God. You see, it's at this moment on the cross that God showed the length that he will go to love and redeem the undeserving. There's nothing more compelling to the human heart than the message of this love. The cross is glorious not because of itself, but because in the message of the kingdom, it is the clearest display of the goodness of God. The cross, the message of the cross is how we truly come to know God and see him most clearly. How we see that he's long-suffering, he's merciful, that he doesn't just pass over sins, that he's empathetic, that he enters in. It's there that we learn that he truly is good. We glory in the cross because it's how we come to know God. What the people meant for shame and the devil meant for destruction on the cross, Jesus turned upside down so that we could see God more clearly than ever before. And we can see his good sovereignty over all things. It was in three days that this king, who seemingly had been defeated, would rise from the tomb in eternal victory over Satan's sin and death. The message of his kingdom, the message of God's kingdom, the good news, the gospel, therefore goes out and calls out to whoever would hear it to give their allegiance to this king who defeated their enemies of Satan's sin and death in their place through his love. It was this king who declared that unless a man is born again, he can't enter his kingdom. And that new birth only comes by hearing the message, the word of the kingdom, the good news. You might remember in Acts chapter 8 when Philip the evangelist preached the good news of the kingdom of God. Men and women heard it and received it and believed it and were baptized. This good news of God's kingdom and life under his reign through his king called them to turn from their sin to trust in Christ and begin a new life. Friends, the word of the kingdom is ultimately a message about a king who died for his enemies so that those who would believe in him would inherit the very kingdom he purchased for them forever under his reign and rule. Which is why you and I, citizens of the kingdom, we have nothing to boast about but the cross. That's it. There's nothing left for you and I to congratulate ourselves on. There's no space for self-congratulatory thought and belief in the kingdom. Which means for the citizens of God's kingdom, there's no space for swagger. All we have to boast in is what was freely done for us by our king. Friends, how do you hear the word of God's kingdom? How do you hear the message of God's kingdom? How do you hear, as some gospel writers would say, the word of God encompassing the word of God's kingdom? How how do you hear the gospel? 
the good news. This is the concern, ultimately, of Jesus' parable in Matthew chapter 13. You'll find this parable in Mark and Luke as well. It's one of the few you'll find in the three synoptic gospels. And the ultimate concern with the parable, and we could spend a week on each little part, and in some sense it's worthy of it, but the ultimate concern in the parable is how you and I hear the word of God's kingdom, the word of the gospel. One scholar, his name is Simon Kistemacher. I like to quote him whenever I can because I like to say his name. <laughs> Kistemacher. He captures, really, in the parable, the, the, the three main points of the entire story. And he, here's what he says. He said, the word of God is proclaimed, and it causes a division among those who will hear it. God's people will receive his word, understand it, and obediently fulfill it. Others will fail to listen because of a hardened heart, a basic superficiality, or a vested interest in riches and possessions. This parable that Jesus gives us provides a sober reminder that even the most enthusiastic outward response to the gospel offers no guarantee that one may truly be a disciple. Only the tests of time, perseverance under difficult circumstances, the avoidances of the idolatries of wealth and anxiety over earthly concerns, and above all, the presence of appropriate fruit, consistent obedience to God's will, can in the end prove a profession genuine. So lesson one, good commentaries make Bible reading easier. There's the sermon. I mean, he summed it up in like four sentences right there. But you're already here. So I'll keep talking. Matthew 13, verse 1. The same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And I always find this cool. I want to see this one day. You know, crowds were surrounding Jesus again, and, and, and the other gospel writers make it a little more clear. He actually got out on a boat and set off from the shore because on this floating pulpit that Jesus would teach from, sound would deflect off the water. So those who were sitting on the hillside, it was like a better amplification system than anything we have. He wouldn't have to shout or yell. The way the water would work up against the hillside, it would deflect the sound. So he's out on a floating pulpit, and he's beginning to speak. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables. And here's how he began. This particular chapter in Matthew's gospel is chocked full for Matthew's purposes, but this one begins this way. A sower went out to sow. And they would have all had the right image in their mind. It's probably around October, and a farmer is out with a bag over his shoulder, sitting in front of him, his hand going in it, and, and gracefully casting seed out onto his land. And his land would be a mixture of a number of things. And if he had animals, and most likely he did, in his fields and in his land, there were going to be areas, paths along the edges most likely, that were hardened by the continual path and the walking of these animals. And there may be patches of his land in different places that might have bedrock in them. And, and what he would generally do, and I didn't understand this until I was studying it for this particular week, no matter how many times I've read this parable and, and read about it before, that their process of sowing and preparing is a bit different than ours. We go do a garden, we till up the ground, then we plant the soil and we smooth it over. They actually would sow seed, then till it, and wait for the rain to come and water it. That's how it would work. And so in their mind, they can begin to see this, this gardener, this farmer, this man, this woman, this family out there doing this. And 
He went out to sow, and verse 4 tells us, as he sowed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. That's, that's normal. Everybody would be familiar with that. This is an unusual circumstance. They would see it in their mind. Other seeds would fall on rocky ground where they didn't have much soil, and immediately they'd spring up, and since they had no depth, when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Now, don't, if you, don't do what I did for, for years. Don't, don't picture in your mind a, a lazy farmer who has a, a field or an area of a field that's got a bunch of gravel or rocky area in it, and he just chose not to take it away. No, this is speaking about the fact that there were areas in the region very familiar to them, very little they could do about it in the moment, that underneath the surface was a base of limestone, a bedrock not far beneath the surface. This isn't a guy who just had a bunch of gravel. There's a a bedrock layer underneath the ground in different spots and in different places, and so it's impossible to avoid to some sense. Verse 7 Other seeds fell among thorns, and thorns grew up and choked them. You can see that. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And then Jesus says this, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And what happens next, we didn't read it, but what happens next is utterly awesome. Go back and read it this week. After he taught these things, his disciples came up to him and said, I think you're expecting that we fully understand what you're talking about. Now, they they couched it the other way. They said, why do you teach them in parables? But I think they come up to Jesus and are like, "I, I think you're expecting us to get something and we're not getting it. And in one of the most comforting moments, at least for me, because I feel so much like them so often, so comforting in having all this time with Jesus and having moments where they're not quite sure what he's saying. Starting in verse 18, Jesus breaks it down. He explains this parable. We don't have to wonder what he's trying to say. He, he tells them what he's saying. And in explaining this parable, the easiest way that I can say it is he allows you and I, like a, a good physician, he, he allows you and I to undergo some heart exams. He does some diagnostics for us, if we'll have ears to hear him. Verse 18, he says, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, Mark and Luke will say, when anyone else hears the word, when anyone else hears the word of God, because they're all a way of saying the message of God's kingdom, the gospel, God's word about himself, his king, his kingdom, and our life in it. When anyone hears this word, and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away, and snatches away what has been sown in the heart. This is what is sown along the path. So the word of the kingdom, the the gospel, the good news, God's word, Jesus' word, it's proclaimed. It's heard. But the heart is unaffected. The message of the gospel, God's word is shared, it's proclaimed, it's taught, it's read. There's exposure, the seed is sown, it's fallen on the heart, but the heart doesn't really see any significance for its life. I think the easiest way that I can explain what I think Jesus is saying here is that for those with a heart like the one Jesus is talking about here, Christianity, the word of God, the message of the kingdom, the gospel, the truths of Jesus, 
to the heart, they're just remaining theoretical. They're just remaining a matter of academics. I think one of the scariest things about this when I think about it is if you read the parable with honesty, what he's saying is it's very possible, quite normal, more than we would want to admit, to have regular ongoing contact with this seed, with this word, spoken, read, books, articles, podcasts, sermons, whatever. And to the heart, the message of the kingdom, the word of the gospel simply remains theoretical. It's just theory. Like that seed being sown, it hasn't gotten under the surface yet. For that sower to sow that seed and for it to produce anything, it's got to get under the surface. It's got to break the ground and get under it. And for many, the word of God is proclaimed, it's read, there's exposure, it's heard, it's shared. But it hasn't quite gotten under the surface yet. And Jesus offers us a very kind and very gracious diagnostic. How do you hear the word of the kingdom? Is it still just theoretical for you? In reading it and hearing it and presenting yourself in front of it to receive it, has there been a moment at all in any part of your exposure to God's word, the message of the gospel, the message of the kingdom, where you have had your mail read in a way that you know only God can expose this? You knew it was true about you, but you haven't put your name on it yet in his word. Where it's gotten below the surface to the point that you hear what he's saying and you go, I need this. I want this. How do you hear God's word, the message of his kingdom? I think one very important note that, that Jesus gives us when he starts off with this first soil, and I don't want to overlook it, is that straight away Jesus reminds us that there is a very real spiritual battle being fought for the souls of men and women. He doesn't mention it in the other soils, but it doesn't mean the same enemy isn't present. We can talk about that in a minute. Here, Jesus says, on this particular path, the evil one is at work. He has his strategies to take away the gospel word from the heart. And in Mark's account of this particular parable, Mark uses the word immediately. He says that immediately, this word that was sown, is snatched away and devoured. Now, the same thing can happen, and the same thing can be true for Christians. Satan has his strategies, and I don't want to overlook this. The Satan has his strategies to immediately, so to speak, to use Mark's language, snatch away from us the seed of the gospel, the sown word of God when we're exposed to it. One of the chief ways he does it is by constantly keeping our minds and our hearts distracted. Keeping our minds and our hearts off of God's word. Making whatever exposure to it we have in the moment ineffectual for our heart. Sitting here being frustrated that you've got to be six feet away from everybody else and your mind can't think of anything else. sitting down to read God's word and intent on hearing from God and an hour and a half goes by and you're two lines in because you've done 10 other things. That's not condemning. There's a strategy at work. 
I love the way that Piper says it. He, speaking of this distraction, he says Satan will cause feelings of aversion to block the word of God from the heart. These feelings, he says, might be against the preacher or against his language or simply against the truths of the gospel. I know it's happening all the time when I'm up here. This isn't just a moment of my job. There is a battle happening right here. I'm aware of that. Are you aware of it? He says, people may hear and understand exactly what is being said, but in the end despise it. That's why Paul said the gospel was foolishness to those who are perishing. Satan will work to maintain the worldly sense of value in the heart so that the value of the death of Christ, the message of the kingdom, is as nothing to you. He'll give you such a high estimation of yourself that the message of brokenness before the cross for our sin is disgusting and threatening. He said the word of God in that distraction will gain no foothold. It'll be taken away. How do you hear the word of the kingdom? Jesus goes on and says in verse 20, for, there's another way that it's heard. He said, what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. When tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Now again, don't don't picture like a, a gravel lot. That's not what's happening here. This is an area that has a a shelf, a bedrock, some limestone a few inches below the surface. You can't even see it with your eye in the moment. And here's what happens. When that seed gets tossed in that area, sown in that area, the ground gets tilled up and the rains come, what happens is that seed shoots up real fast. It's like somebody poured miracle grow on it. Because the combination of that stone underneath and that shallow ground creates the perfect environment for a while for moisture to be retained and warmth to be retained. So this shoot comes up faster than anything else. But then as the intensity of the sun in the season grows, that lack of a significantly deep root system would caused that plant that was so promising in the beginning to dry out, to wither, and to die. That limestone got in the way of those roots taking hold deep enough to sustain the plant. Jesus is offering a diagnostic and a warning to a a shallow, a rootless type of belief. A Christianity that is based on emotions. Do you catch what he said? immediately it's received with joy. And there's excitement. There's news of, in your mind what Jesus can do for you. I want that. And there's excitement and then there's joy. Then things get difficult. Maybe it's a difficult circumstance in your life. Maybe it's a particular type of suffering here. Jesus is very clear. When things get difficult, in particular on account of my word, when following me costs more than you anticipated, when obedience to my commands and life in my kingdom under my rule and my reign gets difficult for your immediate life, do you hear what he said? Just as quickly, immediately, 
this person falls away. See, difficulty in, to use Jesus' words, tribulation and persecution, they're going to expose your roots. And this shallow type of belief hears the message of the kingdom, but in the heart, it's an invitation for Jesus to enter our kingdom and work on our agenda. And when life in his kingdom demands something different from us and it gets hard, the shallow heart very quickly walks away. And let's be very, very honest this morning. In, how do I say it? In all of our hearts, there, there lives a, a, a constantly germinating kernel of a gospel message that says if we believe in Jesus and are willing to follow Jesus, difficulty for his name or difficulty in this life shouldn't happen to us the way that it is. Call it, label it, whatever you want to call it, it is in your heart. There's something germinating in our arrogant and sinful heart that believes we did something that puts God in our debt. When difficulty comes especially difficulty related to his word. That little germinating seed whispers in our hearts that following him wasn't supposed to be this uncomfortable. It wasn't supposed to be this inconvenient. It it wasn't supposed to be this discouraging. But here's the thing. That message is nowhere in the Bible. I mean, if we had time, we could just walk from beginning to end We could go Abraham, we could go Moses, we could go the prophets. Paul is the clearest explanation of this. Repeatedly beaten and left for dead, imprisoned, lied about, false teachers taking his congregations astray. I mean, this man labored with all of his heart to preach the message of the gospel. People were getting saved, churches were being formed, and the minute he would walk away, other people would come in, lie about him, and take those people in a wrong direction everywhere he went. Twice, Paul says, he was shipwrecked. One time after he shipwrecked, he manages to get on a piece of debris, I guess, and float his way to an island. And when he gets on the shore of the island, he builds a fire to get warm, and what happens? He's bitten by a viper. He's just preaching the message of the kingdom. Peter, crucified upside down. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Tradition tells us he was boiled alive and he didn't die. And it so freaked out the Romans, they they sent him out to an island for the rest of his life on Patmos. But listen to Paul for just a minute, because I think this is important. If you listen to Paul and go back and, and read his letters, Paul is not surprised that these things happen. Paul would say, don't be surprised that it's difficult at times to follow Jesus in this kingdom. Don't be surprised that people might turn on you. Don't be surprised they might lie about you. Don't be surprised that they might follow a different gospel. Don't be surprised that some will seek to discredit you. Don't be surprised, but, but it is human to be shaken by these things. 
Don't be surprised. But it's very human to be shaken by them. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, Paul's talking about these afflictions. He says, we are afflicted in every way. None of us can come close to the way Paul was afflicted. But he brings everybody in. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Not surprised. Perplexed. Confused, but not crushed or driven to despair. And right now in this world, and let's just be honest, for as long as sin has been present, there have been and continue to be some awful, evil, deplorable, horrific things that happen to people. And it's okay to be shaken by the reality of evil, by the reality of sin still at work, in the hearts of men and women and that sin blooming in these different ways. It's okay to be shaken by the reality of evil, perplexed, but here's the thing. Let's let's at least stop pretending that this isn't the reality, that we're not shaken by it. I think if we have a tendency is to think that we're not supposed to be shaken by these things and quote all the verses that tell us how strong we're supposed to be. Well, yes, in Christ we are, but we're shaken by these realities because here's the thing. If we don't own the fact that we're shaken by it, if we don't confess to one another and to God himself that we're shaken by these things, if we don't open ourselves up to be encouraged by one another when we're shaken by these things, you know what we do? We get ourselves off by ourselves, try to figure out how to make ourselves strong enough. And we're not in ourselves. We're simply not. Friends, let's not let each other conclude that because of all of these things that are happening and have happened, that somehow God and his king aren't trustworthy. Friends, let's help one another go back to the word of the kingdom. Back to the message of the cross at its center where God most clearly demonstrates to us his trustworthiness and his love. At times when it's hard, we're shaken. We don't need to be surprised, though. Jesus says this shallow heart, it it has no space for gospel roots. So when following him begins to cost, when following him and is too great a price. We see most clearly what our heart truly worships. His word might be received with joy quickly, but it's not followed by repentance. And when the price seems too high, the shallow fall away. And Jesus would say over and over again in his message, is he who has ears to hear, let him hear. How are you hearing the word of the kingdom? He kept going, though, verse 22, asked for what was sown among thorns. This is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So if the rocky soil represented a shallow heart, this soil represents a divided heart. The ground in this area of the field 
underneath the surface had deep and abiding root systems of thorny weeds in it. The bushes above ground might have been cut, might have been removed, but the roots were still there. And so when the seed was sown and the ground was plowed and the water would come, both would grow up together. But here's the thing, the one with the more established root system would always win. Its established root system would compete for the water and the moisture and the nutrients, and it would always win. And what would happen is after the plant that was sown would grow, it would rise up, but it would begin to wither and die away because it wasn't able to get what it needed to sustain. And what's so interesting about this one as you read the story like a human is that in some ways, unlike the other two, this isn't immediate or even short-lived. In the first soil, Mark used the word immediate, but Matthew paints the picture that the devil comes and takes it away. And in the second one, we could go through the New Testament and we could see how persecution is often an instrument of the enemy and another time. But no, no, the distance between receiving it with joy but then falling away just as quickly. There's a quickness to these, but in this one, it's a bit different. The heart doesn't fall away. The heart doesn't run away when it's hard. This one's kind of drawn out. The best way I can differentiate it in my mind with a picture is the difference between knocked out in a boxing ring and choked out in a jiu-jitsu match. One happens very quickly and it's very clear. The other one, it can happen without you even being aware of it. Jesus says there's a possibility that we can be rendered spiritually unconscious without even realizing it. In a divided heart, it's not complicated. A dividing heart is just a heart that has too many things vying for the same level of importance. It's a heart that offers Jesus a seat at the table with everything else. He has a voice and he has a vote, but that's it. What happens is our life in the kingdom gets choked. We're not seeing the kind of change in our hearts, in our lives, in our delights, in our joys. We're not seeing the kind of power that Jesus speaks about being resident in his kingdom, working in and through us. Rather, there's more doubt and anxiousness. And on the outside, it's hard to tell. But on the inside, the heart's quite a mess. And it doesn't matter whether it's the cares of the world or the deceitfulness of riches. We could spend a week on each of those. What Jesus is pointing out is something he will say repeatedly in his ministry. Your heart cannot serve two masters. It can't. He's not asking for a seat at the table of your heart. A voice to make his case in moments to get voted out or not. You can't serve this king and the world at the same time. That is a recipe for a miserable spiritual death. As I was thinking about it and thinking about the the Western American church most particularly, you know the the first soil, the the first heart, the one in which the the message of the kingdom was quickly taken away, and the second heart, the, the one in which received it with joy, but when it got too hard, it fell away and went the other way. Do you know that Neither of those hearts, at least in the parable, most likely at this point, are really miserable. But this third heart, this divided heart, it's got to be the most spiritually miserable heart imaginable. 
It's divided. The heart is serving the career that we've chosen, an inordinate amount of passion, intensity, and fervor towards building this name for ourselves in this path. Whatever it might be, that's just an example. But it's miserable because it's divided over here because it's hearing the word of God and the call of the kingdom and the joy of the kingdom and the life of the kingdom and it knows it all and it senses it all and it's experienced part of it, but it can't figure out which way to go and it's miserable. That is the Western church. You wonder, and at least I wonder why so many people are turned away by the message of the gospel and I don't think it's always the offense of the gospel. I think it's the miserable nature of the church. A heart often divided, trying to have a little bit of everything. Spurgeon said, if you are indeed a real disciple and you're on the boat of salvation, on the way to heaven, you and I both know you can't fall off the boat. But you can't fall on the boat break all your bones, spend the whole trip in the infirmary. You have a divided heart. Which is why the psalmist will pray, Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. We sing it around here all the time. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. See, friends, until your heart says that this word of the gospel, this word of the kingdom, until your heart can sing this line, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all, until it can say that about the word of the gospel, it hasn't gotten down to the bottom of the surface yet. It's not there yet. We find ourselves living in such misery sometimes because we're trying to serve two kings. It doesn't work. And the common factor in in all of these first three soils is that none of them bear fruit. Some look promising for a little while, but there was no fruit because the word of the gospel had had never truly taken root. Jesus is giving ourselves an opportunity to examine our own heart. How are we hearing the word of his kingdom? Are we bearing fruit for him over the long haul? Is our faith divided, shallow? He didn't end the story there in verse 23. He said, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. And in a case, a hundredfold, another 60, another 30. This is what we want, right? There it is. This is what we want. A heart that is receptive a heart that is ready, a heart that is welcoming, a heart that receives the message of the kingdom and the fruit of the gospel kingdom is produced in our lives and through our lives to wherever God puts us. That's what we want. Great. But if you're like me, you read it and go, well, that's not me. At least not as much as I want. I know you have thorns in your heart. I have them in mine as well. I know there are rocky areas in your heart. I have them as well. 
which is why you have to take very careful attention when you read this story and remind yourself, in this story, you are the dirt. If you ever want to say, I'm dirt, this is the moment to do it and be justified. In this story, you are the dirt. You are not the gardener. God is the gardener. And if you read it just encapsulated, just in this story and just in this moment, you realize it is not the dirt's job to get the rocks out. It's not the dirt's job to get the thorns out. That's the gardener's. Do you know what the dirt does in this story? It receives the seed. It hears the word of the kingdom and receives it. You see rocks and you see thorns? You've got to realize you can't fix them yourself. The only way for those things to be dealt with is to go directly to the gardener. You read that last soil and say yes and amen, you go to the gardener. I have these thorns and you name them. I have these rocks, please remove them, pull this out. You and I realize as we read the story, we can't make bad hearts good. We can't make bad soil good without his intervention. And so we come and we say, these are my thorns. You've been kind enough to show them to me. These are my rocks. Take them away. I want to hear you. I want to listen to you. Please pull these things out. I don't know if you ever realized it, but the, the longest chapter in the Bible is an uncomfortably long prayer about hearing and receiving and reflecting on and obeying God's word. That's what Psalm 119 is about. You need words to go to the gardener with? Come to him in humility and ask him to give you the ears you need to hear his word. He even in grace gives you words to bring to him when you can't come up with them yourself. Here's the thing. What do you think he's going to say if you do that? What do you really think he's going to say? Did you say, no, it just took you too long? No, you didn't say it right. No, come back another day. No, he's going to say, of course I will. Don't you realize those thorns you're coming to me with saying, take these things away? Don't you realize I already wore them on my head? that crown they thought was to shame me and mock me, don't you realize I took those things on my head and made them beautiful? Those rocks, here are the rocks. They're in the way, I'm so, so shallow. Here, 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 here it is, take them away. What do you think he's gonna say? Don't you realize? They put me in one of those for three days. I've carried that thing and taken it away. What do you, what do you think he's going to say? Of course he'll answer. 
The parable of the sower, just like everything else Jesus has said, is meant in the end to drive us back to him again. To be reminded that he, as our king, can and always will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. There's no need to be in despair, church. We know the gardener. He's the king. The kingdom comes by hearing. Which is why he says, be very careful about how you hear. How are you hearing the message of the kingdom? Friends, go back to his word. Hear it. Listen to it. Think on it. Consider its implications. Ask him to help you receive it and hear it and obey it. Give yourself to it so that you can see the power of his kingdom at work in new ways in and through you. How do you hear? How does your heart hear? The message of the kingdom. Let me pray for us this morning as we prepare to respond to God's word. Lord, we, we want, I, I do, I, I believe it, I, I, we want to hear and receive your word. Lord, we want to enjoy you. We want to enjoy your kingdom. We want to enjoy the power and the grace of your kingdom in our heart, in our life, and through our life today. So Lord, we ask that you would do what only you could do by your Holy Spirit and you would help us to see the soil of our own heart. You're so gracious in your word to expose those things, to give us these exams. Help us to see the reality of our own heart that in faith, knowing the trustworthiness and the goodness of the king, help us to come to you with the courage to say, please, pull these things out. Get rid of these things. Rip out the roots. Help me to hear. I want to hear. I want to surrender. I want to give my whole self to you. And we need you to do this by your Holy Spirit for it to be a reality in our hearts. And so we ask that you would do this very thing in Jesus' name for his glory and our joy. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.